Good afternoon, everyone. <clears throat> I'd like to add my welcome to all of our guests today. And as Mr. Armstrong would say, greetings, friends, around the world. We're delighted to be here with you. I want to thank you for that wonderful special music, Mrs. Ames and Jennifer. It was just exquisite. Thank you so much. We're delighted to be here, as I say, on a rainy Sabbath afternoon. A good place to be and among friends and brethren. You know, brethren, as a people, we love lists. I'm sure that you're that way. You know, we have examples of uh, the list of the best dressed. And all those that are in the know and who want to be cool, you see, they want to be on that list. We have the list of the best books. People want to be on the top ten list of the best sellers. We have uh, the uh, best restaurants here in Charlotte. They put out the entertainment guide. And, and the restaurant strives to get in there on the list of the best restaurants. Then, we, of course, we have the best movies. People follow that. Uh, the best places to live in communities and Chambers of Commerce work really hard to see that their city is listed on this best places to live. We have the best athletes, and we want to know where our teams are in the standings. So we like to follow those things. We love to categorize and to group and to label. Now, books are published with lists. They have the book of lists, you know, and you have the Guinness Book of World Records. Entertainers make humorous lists, and we get a real chuckle out of them. You know, uh, uh, David Letterman's the top ten list, you see. Now, some time ago, a newspaper columnist, a professor of political science at Lyons College, wrote a very interesting piece using his reader's love of lists as a springboard, as a way to get into his article. His column was entitled, Ten Really Dumb Ideas of Mankind. <laughs> and, you know, he proceeded to list and explain what he thought were the ten dumbest ideas of the 20th century. And it had to do with uh, various political things and treaties and the income tax and all of those things. But, you know, as I read his column, I thought it was a very interesting way to focus on mistakes from which we as a people can learn. It was, it was just a, it was a memory hook for me. So, uh, certainly, as we think about this, mankind in general, and Israel in particular, has made really dumb mistakes down through the ages that have resulted in much pain and suffering and hardship for the human race. Now, the lesson is, as we look at this, is that the quality of our thinking determines the quality of our lives. Right thinking, uh, sound decisions bring good things. We call those blessings. And dumb ideas, defective reasoning, brings difficulties, pain, suffering, heartache. Those would be curses, you see. So we, we have those things. Today, brethren, in the sermon, let's, let's use the professor's approach. Let's consider ten really dumb ideas of mankind. Here we go now. Number ten. There's good in all religion. Now, this is commonly taught. It's commonly taught now, and many fall into the trap of believing this really dumb idea. Now, people study Eastern religions, uh, Hinduism, uh, Buddhism, Shintoism, Taoism, Sikhism, and of course, Islam. Today, around the world, a lot of attention focused on that. Then, of course, there's Roman Catholicism, there's Eastern Orthodox Catholicism, and all the branches of Protestantism. People get into those things. People even get into Wicca or witchcraft, Satan worship. After all, there's some good, there's some truth in all religions, so they must be okay. Right? Wrong. Wrong. Turn back to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. You know this by heart, brethren. Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. 
Here we see God speaking. Exodus 20, verse 1, And God spoke all these words. If God says it, we should pay attention. Certainly, look at verse 3. The Eternal says, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself any carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Eternal, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me and showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. Brethren, do we get it? God is possessive. It says He is a jealous God. He is not willing to share His people. He is not willing to share with other gods that really aren't gods. He wants our full attention. He demands allegiance to Him only. It's very plain as we read the Scriptures. Turn over to Jeremiah 10. We'll look at lots of Scriptures today and you're familiar with all of them. Jeremiah 10. Very plain instruction. Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 1. Hear the word which the Eternal speaks to you, O house of Israel. So again, we have God speaking here. Thus says the Eternal, verse 2, Do not learn the way of the Gentiles. Do not be dismayed at the signs of heaven. For the Gentiles are dismayed at them. For the customs of the peoples are futile. It means vain, worthless. And it goes on and describes some of the things that they do that uh, that we still do today regarding evergreen trees and so on. So God says, don't do it. Why? Because it's worthless. It's harmful. And He would have for us good things and not harmful things. Now we see very plain instruction about this in the New Testament as well. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Verse 14. Here we see the Apostle Paul writing about this subject. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 14. He says, Therefore, my beloved, flee, run from idolatry. We aren't to see how close we can get or uh, to find that good and so on. He says, flee from idolatry. Look at verse 16. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion or the sharing of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the sharing of the body of Christ? And then, down in verse 21, You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Remember, he said long ago he was a jealous guy. He did not and would not share his people. And so many of these religions that I mentioned, you see, have uh, uh, their influence and their impetus from demonism. And obviously we are not to have anything to do with any of that. Now, some idolatry is obvious. Uh, if you visited Rome, we had the opportunity to do this last year after the feast, and you go through the Vatican and the Vatican Museum, and you see all of these obvious examples of idolatry. My father was a devout Catholic, and when I would visit him in each room, he had a crucifix on the wall. And in his front yard, he had a grotto with the Virgin Mary, so-called, with lights on. I mean, this was obvious idolatry, you see. And yet there's idolatry that's not so obvious. Turn back to First Samuel. First Samuel. Chapter 15, you know the story of Saul. Saul who started with so much promise 
who had such great potential, and yet it didn't turn out well because he would not follow instructions. He just didn't get it. 1 Samuel 15, verse 23. Samuel explaining to Saul, For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft or divination, and stubbornness, that hard-hearted, hard-headed attitude, you see, that we as human beings tend to have, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Do we see, brethren, an attitude can be idolatrous? doesn't have to be that grotto you see out in the front yard. It doesn't have to be that crucifix. It can be an attitude that comes between you and God. Turn back to Colossians. We'll see another example of something that might not be so obvious, but something we need to be on guard against. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5. Colossians 3 and verse 5. Paul wrote, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire. We see that all about us. It's something that we as human beings have to be on guard against and, and work on, certainly, to resist. And covetousness, which is idolatry. Brethren, were you aware of that? Can you, to covetousness, wanting what you have and what you can't afford and haven't earned, it can be a, a, an attitude of idolatry. Something comes between you and God. Certainly, we need to be on guard of that and, and not covet. Now, Let's go back to one other scripture that illustrates this as well. Look at Isaiah. Back in Isaiah, beautiful, colorful words in Isaiah, always. Some of the most beautiful words in the Bible. I'm sure it's beautiful in the original, and it translates beautifully into English. Isaiah 2, chapter 2, and we'll begin in verse 6. It says, For you have forsaken your people, the house of Jacob. Why? Because they are filled with eastern ways. These ways you see from those eastern religions that had to do with rank paganism. They are soothsayers like the Philistines, and they are pleased with the children of foreigners. Their land is also full of silver and gold. They didn't lack riches. They didn't lack wealth, you see. They had that, and there's no end to their treasures. Their land is also full of horses, and there's no end to their chariots. I mean, they must have had traffic jams back then as well, you see. <laughs> Different, different carriages, but uh, traffic jams nonetheless. Their land is also full of idols. They worship the work of their own hands, that which their own fingers have made. Brethren, I think that is a detailed description of our society today. And it's so easy for us, even as God's people, to fall into that, to worship what our hands have made, to look around us and see the things that we see that are physical and let them become between us and God. Now, Solomon, the wisest person who lived, until he certainly had his problems. Turn over to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Here he has a colorful description of what happens when you take something that could be good and mix in some error, mix in something that's foul, mix in something that corrupts. Ecclesiastes 10 verse 1. Solomon wrote, Dead flies putrefy the perfumer's ointment. Can't you imagine your wife taking this lovely bottle of perfume and starting to put on a little and notice there's a rotten fly in it? <laughs> She'll not use that. And so it shows that something can be good, and yet when you mix in error, it becomes worthless, something that's repugnant. 
So does a little folly. It says, and it causes it to give off a foul odor. So does a little folly do one respected for wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart is at his right hand and a fool's heart and in his left. You know, it's, it's in- interesting today. We talk about the conservatives on the right and the liberals on the left. I think that Solomon probably had that in mind as, as he wrote this as well. So the untruths and falsehood and all these religions render them worthless. And God says, don't go there. Number nine, let's press on. We have a lot of points to cover, and we'll cover them quickly today. Number nine, as we make our list, there are no absolutes. Mankind must make its own way. Nothing is sacred. Nothing is worthy of reference. Another one of those dumb ideas of mankind. Now, that's an atheistic and materialistic approach to life. And we see that all about us. Turn back to Exodus again. Exodus 20. What does God have to say about this? Is there anything worthy of reverence? This world would tell you no. Exodus 20, verse 7. God inspired Moses to write long ago. It's written back here. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the eternal will not hold him guiltless who who takes his name in vain. So here we see that we should have respect. We should have reverence toward God in His name. Very plain. And yet this world and most people just do not understand that at all. And you hear God's name bandied about in um, entertainment and in music and in uh, literature without giving any thought for how it's used. They use it in a common way and in profanity. And in oaths and in swearing, not realizing, not grasping the fact that God says we are to use it uh, with great respect. Turn over to Psalm 111, a psalm that you're familiar with. Psalm 111. As we talk about what's worthy of respect, what's worthy of reverence. Psalm 111. Verse 9, it says, He has sent redemption to His people. He has commanded His covenant forever. Holy and awesome, it says in the New King James, and reverend in the uh, Old King James is His name. Holy and reverend is His name. The Hebrew word is Y-A-R-E. It means to fear. It means to revere. It means to be in reverence of. So obviously we as human beings should look at God and His name and who He is and what He does and and hold that in great respect. We should be in awe of that. And if we do that, then we're more careful to do what He says, to follow His instructions, to put into practice the things that He would have us to do. Now, this wasn't just an Old Testament thing. Jesus Christ made it very, very Plain when he walked the earth that we were to use God's name with reverence. Look at Matthew chapter 6. Here we have a very familiar passage. People around the world sing this as a beautiful hymn. The Lord's Prayer. It's the model prayer. And Jesus was instructing his disciples. And he said in verse 9, In this manner therefore pray. He was giving them an outline, some instructions on how to do this. And the very first part of the prayer says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. It means with to show reverence to God's name. It means to not uh, 
to use it in a way that would not be appropriate in any way. We should be careful how we use God's name. Don't cheapen it. Don't assign God's name to things that don't pertain to Him or to things of which He would not approve. Be careful how we use this name of God. Now, certainly there's some groups that are involved in the Jesus name and sacred names and all of those things, and that's not what we're talking about. But in the manner in which we use it in our language, we see we're to use it in a careful and respectful way. Now, part of this really dumb idea was there are no absolutes. Are there absolutes? I think you'll find there are. Look at Isaiah chapter 30. We have to have a different perspective. Isaiah. Isaiah 30. Verse 21. I'm sorry, Isaiah 55. I'm ahead of myself. Isaiah 55. Those of you that wear trifocals understand how that can happen. (laughs) Those of you that don't will soon. (laughs) Isaiah 55 verse 8 For my thoughts are not your thoughts nor are your ways my ways says the eternal for as the heavens are higher than the earth so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts there is certainly a whole way of living and thinking that is above what mankind does and we are to be learning that way we are to study God's word and to learn his thoughts in His words, in His ways. And when we do that, we'll find that there are absolutes. There are things that we should be doing. Now turn back to uh, Isaiah 30. There's going to be a time in the millennium when we are doing the jobs for which we are now being prepared, when we are kings and priests, and when we'll be there to help people learn the lessons that they need to learn. And Exodus 30, verse 21, talks about that. You can read the verses that go before, but we'll just pick it up in verse 21 of Isaiah 30. Your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, This is the way. Walk in it. There are absolutes. This is the way. This is the way God says to do it. Whenever you turn to the right hand or whenever you turn to the left, there are absolutes for certain. One of the things we talk about is, uh, obviously, is respecting God, but there are other things that deserve honor. Let's turn back to Exodus 20. Again, this is one that all of you know, but as we look at these really dumb ideas, let's look at these really wonderful ideas that God has preserved for us and given us as absolutes. Exodus 20, verse 12. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You know, when little children learn to respect their parents and honor their parents at the level of understanding that they have there, then as they grow older and mature, they can learn to love and respect God and to have reverence for God. It's an important thing. We are to learn the lessons as children, and then we can learn the lessons as adults. Let's move on. To the next really dumb idea. Number eight, the theory of evolution. Darwin's theory of natural selection, survival of the fittest. We saw a wonderful uh, program here as the sermonette a few weeks ago by Mr. O'Gwen as he talked about was Darwin Darwin, uh, right. So much of science is tainted with this really dumb idea, this false premise that it colors and negates the value of much of uh, today's education. Uh, Did the things we know today evolve? 
The educational system would have you believe that. But what does God say? Look at Genesis 1. Words so familiar to you, brethren. Let's look at them, though, with a fresh approach. Did the things we know today evolve? Genesis 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning, God created heavens and earth. There was a starting point. Now, scientists understand this, and yet they don't want to acknowledge this. There had to be a, a starting point. There is no past eternity of matter, as we know from, from our studies. Now, there was a starting point. Verse 11, we see that God created a plant life, the herbs and so on. And we come on down to verse 20, and we see that uh, let the waters abound with abundance of living creatures. So He created the fish and the sea creatures and all the birds. And then coming down to verse 24, then God said, let the earth bring forth a living creature according to its kind. So all the other living creatures were created by God according to this account. And then, verse 26, we see the culmination of God's creation physically, and that is, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle and all the... Uh, other creeping things, and so on. So here we see that God created all of this and gives the details. Now, brethren, why do men keep coming up with such dumb ideas about creation? There is a reason. Turn back to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. Why do they become confused and, and not acknowledge God as creator? Exodus 20 verse 8. The fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your maidservant, nor your, your manservant, your maidservant, your, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. Why? For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Brethren, it's so basic, but why do men keep making such mistakes about creation? They don't keep the Sabbath, which is a memorial to creation. Every Sabbath is a reminder that there was a beginning, and God made it all. And then He rested and provided a day of rest for us on that time. They don't do that. They don't keep that day, so they lose sight of this. They don't want to retain that in their knowledge. Turn over to John. Very familiar ten Again, we see this Old Testament account, and John talks about it in more uh, detail of the New Testament, telling who actually did this. John 1, verse 1. John 1, verse 1. In the beginning, we just talked about that in Genesis, here we are in John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Verse 3, all things were made through Him. You notice it didn't say all things evolved over eons of time. <laughs> no, all things were made through Him, and without Him, nothing was made that was made. So we see as we read this, Jesus was the Word, and the Word was the Creator. And yet as we, this is so plain to us, and yet this world does not want to acknowledge that. Now, Paul told the Romans, the church at Rome, that they were without excuse. Look at Romans chapter 1. 
He talked to them about creation. Romans chapter 1, verse 20. Romans 1, verse 20. For since the creation of the world, Paul wrote, His, Christ's invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. They really didn't have an excuse because the creation is so obvious and so plain when you understand it and and pursue it with an open mind. Verse 21, Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. They lost this important knowledge, and their hearts became darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible, perishable man and birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. We talked about idolatry and they began to, to do those things and worship them in that way. They didn't want to acknowledge God. And because they didn't acknowledge God, they didn't keep His Sabbath, they didn't want to show awe and reverence for Him, they lost that knowledge and became darkened. And did not understand. And now they look for other ways to do that. Now brethren there's coming a time. Turn back to Revelation 6. When the attitude will change. There's coming a time. When these people who don't want to acknowledge God. Will have a different approach. Revelation 6 verse 12. Talking here about the sixth seal. An incredible time. That will come. Revelation 6 verse 12. I looked. When he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth, as the fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Brethren, there's coming a time when the theory of evolution will not be on their minds. There's coming a time when they will acknowledge God as Creator who has the power to do all these things we've just seen described. Evolution is a dumb idea. Let's go on to the next really dumb idea. Number seven in our list. Sex without responsibility and without consequences. Now that's the prevailing attitude in the world today. It's in entertainment. It's in the media. It's just everywhere you look. Around our society today, sexual misconduct and sexual perversion is rampant. Let's ask the question, where did gender originate? Let's go back to Genesis 1. Let's go back to Genesis 1. Genesis 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. So on. So here we see that God... Uh, created gender. He created them male and female. And I'm sure that there was no question about the difference. 
You see, at that time. He, he said to be fruitful and multiply. They had to know about the birds and the bees, you see, to do this. He understood that and he, and he taught them that. Now, Jesus quoted this in Matthew 19. Turn back there. Matthew 19, in his teaching to the people at that time. And it's recorded for us. Matthew 19, verse 4. Matthew 19. And verse 4. He was talking to the Pharisees. And they were trying to uh, trip him up and wanted to know about divorce. Verse 4, he said, He answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. And he went on and explained why Moses had uh, allowed them to, to um, uh, divorce because of the hardness of their hearts. Now, we have all this going on around us, but God did not leave us without instruction again about this. Turn back to Exodus 20. Exodus chapter 20, where the commandments are found. And here we see Exodus 20, verse 14. It's only five words. You know it by heart. But it's so powerful and it's so far-reaching when we understand it. Exodus 20, 14. You shall not commit adultery. Brethren, when you think about this, when you meditate on this, when you look at all the Scriptures, this covers all aspects of sexual relationships and practices. If this one commandment was obeyed, it would transform our society. It would literally transform the world today. If this one commandment was observed. Now, over in Leviticus 18, we see that God gave a lot of details about how He wanted things done. Leviticus 18. We'll not read all of it, but let's take a quick look. Leviticus 18. This world does not understand, and they have this really dumb idea that sex is without responsibility and without consequences. Leviticus 18 gives the laws of sexual sins. And again, you can read down through that, but you'll find that verses 6 through 18 give detailed instructions against incest. There were things that were not to be done. In any way, there's great detail. You can read this and read it to your children and un- try to understand that. I know you will. But it's important that we grasp that. We have this detailed instructions. Verse 19 talks about when men and women should abstain as husband and wife. Uh, in verse 20, it talks about no adultery. Very plainly spells that out. Verse 21 talks about the fact they shouldn't sacrifice children. And if you look into these pagan religions, that was something that would often occur is where they sacrificed their children to these pagan gods. Verse 22, no homosexuality. Very plain. No misunderstanding. It was very plain. God explained what was to be done and what was not to be done. Verse 23, no bestiality. Very plain. And then, why? Why did He give these things? Look at verse 24. Do not defile yourselves with any of these things, for by all these things the nations are defiled. These pagan nations around Israel were doing all these things. And so God gave them detailed instructions on what not to do because He did not want them to be uh, defiled. There were stern warnings and clear instructions against homosexuality, pedophilia, all of those things. And it's repeated now 
uh, in Leviticus 20, verses 20 through 21. You can, you can read that. These vile practices were common in Egypt and Canaan and the other nations. They actually incorporated these practices that God said we were not to do uh, in the worship of their pagan idols. So not only was it something they wanted to do, it was actually a part of their worship. And God said it was wrong, and it caused much suffering for the people, it caused unwanted children, disease, poverty, and so on. Now, here's a plain warning. Turn back to Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 6. Wonderful instruction in Proverbs. I know you study them often. And this is one that you know. Proverbs 6, verse 27. I really like this better than the RSV, but in the New King James it says, Can a man take fire to his bosom? Uh, I think it says in the RSV, in his shirt or in his clothes. Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be seared? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her shall not be innocent. People do not despise the thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he is starving. Yet when he is found, he must restore sevenfold. He may have to give up all the substance of his house. Whoever commits adultery uh, with a woman lacks understanding. In the RSV it says, has no sense. (laughs) That's better. To commit adultery, you have no sense. And it goes on and says, he who does so destroys his own soul. Wounds and dishonor he will get, and his reproach will not be wiped away. For a jealousy is a husband's fury, therefore he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will accept no recompense. Nor will he be appeased through, though you give him many gifts. Plain language, play with fire and get burned. That's what it means. And certainly we need to be on guard against that. Now, Jesus Christ made this even more binding. In Proverbs, it's talking about the physical act of doing that. Look at Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Jesus Christ made it even more binding. Matthew 5, verse 27. He was teaching those people at that time, here in the Beatitudes as they are known. Matthew 5, 27. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. The people to whom he was speaking knew that. They acknowledged that. Verse 28. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So we see that he went be, Christ went beyond the act. He made the thought a sin. It all starts in the mind. Every action begins with a thought. And if you think it, and if you roll it over in your mind, if you play with that thought, it's going to happen. Because you'll begin to put those things in. Jesus Christ said, if you look upon a woman, that's, he made the thought a sin. Now, what are the consequences of these wrong sexual practices? People living together without benefit of marriage. By the way, Jesus Christ dealt with that in John 4, verses 7 through 26. I won't read it. But he, had the same, he, he dealt with the same problems in his day that we have in ours. It seems to be more prevalent today. There are more people today and so on. But he dealt with these things and we have his instruction. But what are the, what are the, the consequences? Untold financial hardship. It's a, it's a very serious problem. Emotional scarring, upheaval, divorce. Infidelity and rampant disease. Unwanted children is certainly something that happens. And what we have in this country today is a, is a great scourge 
abortion. Turn back to Exodus 20. Exodus 20. Again, one of these commandments that you know by heart. Exodus 20, verse 13. It says, You shall not murder. And brethren, abortion is murder. God said, Don't do it. Very, very plain. Today we see perversion. We see male and female who, uh, who prey on children. Every time you turn on your news, you see something about it. You open your newspaper, you see something about it. And brethren, it's worse than you know. It's worse than you know. Now, how will God deal with those who refuse to repent and change and give up these sexual sins and perversions? How will He deal with it? It seems so all-pervasive in our society. He does have a plan. Turn to Revelation 21. Revelation 21. talking about the culmination of God's plan as he begins to wrap up this physical existence. Revelation 21, verse 8. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. What he's telling us here, brethren, is that the incorrigibly wicked including these terrible sexual sins that we've been talking about, will burn up. They, if they do not repent, if they are incorrigible, they will burn up. They will then know that the idea that they had was really dumb and God's way was better. Let's press on, brethren, on the list that we have of really dumb ideas. There was a book out a while back written by a popular politician who said, it takes a village to raise a child. Now, would that we had loving communities where we knew each other and so on. That might be the case. But in this day of latchkey children in which the rearing of small children is often left to the hired help, the concept of shifting the burden of rearing of child care to others is popular. That's quite often done. But let's look at what the Bible says, brethren. Whose responsibility is the rearing of children? Look at Proverbs. Proverbs 22. Proverbs 22, verse 6. Here's one that you all know by heart. Proverbs 22, verse 6. Train up a child in the way he should go. means to hedge him in, give him the parameters, you see, keep him out of this ditch and that ditch. Train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, when he's mature, he will not depart from it. Now who's to do that? We'll see, brethren. The family, the mother, the father, the grandparents, the, the extended family are all involved in that. Look at verse 15. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. Little kids don't know. <laughs> you know. They don't know things they have to be taught. They come as a blank slate. And so there could be some foolish ideas that could be harmful. And so they have to be taught. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction will drive it far from it. Now, that's not a popular concept today. <laughs> you know, they can take your children away from you today uh, if, in certain circumstances when the rod is applied. But certainly, uh, this is what the Scripture has to say about it. There's uh, the balance and in, in, in loving discipline is what it's talking about. Turn over to Proverbs 29. Proverbs 29 talks more about this. 
Proverbs chapter 29, verse 15. It says, The rod and reproof give wisdom. So it's talking about focusing on that child and being there for them and teaching them what they need to know. But a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. How often do little kids get in trouble and have serious problems because they simply don't have the guidance that they need? Look at verse 17. Correct your son and he will give you rest. Yes, he will give delight to your soul. Now how can you discipline the child if you're not there? So it's important that we understand what the Scripture has to say about it. There's some things that you can't delegate. Look at Proverbs 13. Proverbs 13, verse 24. Again, it's talking about child-rearing, and it's talking about loving discipline. Verse 24, He who spares his rod hates his son. Now, a person might not really think about that, but that's the result. If you don't take the time and the interest to teach and train your child. But he who loves him disciplines him promptly or early from childhood. You know, if they started out right, then as they grow older, there's not a lot of need for discipline, as it were. These are things that can't be delegated. Proverbs 23, going back to Proverbs 23, verse 13. Proverbs 23, verse 13. Do not withhold correction from a child. If you beat him with a rod, and again, uh, the wording here might seem harsh, but I think it's talking clearly about uh, uh, loving discipline, not a beating, as it were. He will not die. You shall beat him with a rod and deliver his soul from hell. It means the grave, early death. How many times do youngsters have their lives snuffed out because they're unrestrained and they get into situations uh, where their lives are taken? Because of an accident or an injury, if they'd only had training, if they'd only had the instruction and correction, that might not have happened. These are things we can't delegate. We have to do these as members of the family. Turn back to Ephesians. A lot about child rearing and responsibility in the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. And verse 4 talking in the earlier verses about children obeying their parents and so on, giving honor. Verse 4, And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. See, not the village, not the school, not others, but fathers. Bring up your children. We are to train them and bring them up in the admonition of the Lord. I think it's a very important principle. Paul, writing to Timothy, talked about uh, responsibilities involving our families, Look at, uh, including children. Look at 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 5. Nothing new here at all, brethren, but I hope that as we focus on it, you'll find the application appropriate. 1 Timothy 5, verse 8. It says, But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his own household, that would include your wife and your children, you see. And he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, to provide would be not just financially, that's important, but to provide emotionally, spiritually as well. Giving them the companionship and the training and the, and the, the time that they need to develop those wonderful uh, 
relationships. Brethren, don't leave your children to the village. It will gobble them up. Fulfill your God-given responsibilities. Let's press on. Number five, as we press on our list of really dumb ideas. Here's one that must have seemed like a good idea at the time. Give us a king. Give us a king. It all started, you see, with mankind right after the flood. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 10. Genesis chapter 10. God dealing directly with mankind. And then after the flood, we see a despot arise. Genesis 10. We'll begin in verse 8. Cush. You can read all the verses before, but we'll pick it up in verse 8. Cush begot Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord, meaning in place of the Lord. Therefore, he said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. So here we see that Nimrod had the people look to him rather than God. He was the leader. I will provide, he said. We'll go on and read the rest of it. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, Kalna in the land of Shinar. And from there, uh, from that land, he went to Assyria and built Nineveh. You can read about that great city in the book of Jonah. Rehoboth, uh, Ur, and Kala. And, and between Rezin and Nineveh, he built Kala or Kala. And you can read the others. All these cities. He built city-states and set the Babylonish pattern for mankind that we still have coming down to us today. The organization that owns the building that we meet in here goes all the way back to Nimrod. So you see that we see his influence even down in modern times. Now, we know that God worked with Abram and his descendants down to Israel's time, but the people weren't happy with that. Now, let's pick up the story in 1 Samuel 8. 1 Samuel 8. Samuel, the judge. 1 Samuel chapter 8. Here we see the people had a problem. 1 Samuel 8, verse 1. Now it came to pass when Samuel was old, and he made his sons judges over Israel... The name of the firstborn was Joel, and the name of the second one Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice. These boys were bad eggs. They would not do right. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you are old. Now Samuel may not have heard much after that. (laughs) I mean, they kind of, you know, you're old. And your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make for us a king to judge us like all the nations. You know, peer pressure and what the other people are doing seem to me the most powerful influence in our lives. And they looked around them and these other nations had kings. They had the judge. And they wanted a king like all these other nations. They had a problem. They had unrighteous judges there, these two sons that weren't doing right. And yet they made the wrong decision. Look at verse 6. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the eternal. What do you have to do when you have a problem? Take it to God. And that's certainly what Samuel did at this point. Verse 7, And the eternal said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. 
So God gave them what they wanted. They made the request. He heard the request. And he gave them what they wanted. But in verse 9, we see that he also gave them a warning. He said, you're going to get what you want, but here's what you can expect. Now, therefore, heed their voice. However, you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. So here we see they got a warning. Now, verse 11, it says, And he said, This will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his chariots to be his horsemen, and some will run before his chariots. So we'll see now that they have conscription, and they take the men that they want. He will appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties. He will set some to plow his ground and reap his harvest, some to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. Now, the technology has changed, but... The, the situation is the same as we look at, at modern governance. He, verse 13, He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to His servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to His officers and servants. So they had a flat tax at that time, you see. We have a graduated tax. Uh, verse 16, he will take your men servant, men servants and maid servants and your finest young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He'll take a tenth of your sheep and you'll be his servants. And you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. And the Lord will not hear you in that day. Brethren, do you recognize these problems and these things in our modern man's government? The principles are the same. Man rejected God, wanted uh, the government like they had around them, a king and so on, and certainly we see that that happened. Uh, You have taxes, and you see all property rights rest with the state. He said, you will be servants, and you are. And, of course, all these other things that we see. Now, Saul was the first king. He had so much promise. We referred to something about him earlier, but Saul botched it. And you know what happened. David had his problems, but was generally a very good king. Solomon started strong, then went astray. And after that, it was rare to have a righteous king, just as God said it would be. Now, back in Deuteronomy 17, God said this would happen long before it actually happened. Turn back to Deuteronomy 17. Deuteronomy 17. God predicted it and gave the details before it ever happened. Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. said, And when you come to the land which the Lord your God has given you, and possess it, and dwell in it, and say, I will set a king over me, which is exactly what happened, like all the nations that are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord chooses. And of course, in the time of Samuel, that's what they did. God chose Saul and then chose David. One from among your brethren you shall set as king over you, you may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. And then going on, we'll see this, the uh, this instructions. But he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. Why would the, well, the horses would represent military power, building up their, their uh, military forces. He goes on and says, um, uh, nor shall, Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart be turned away. Now, multiply wives. If you look through history, you'll see that there have been alliances and political connections where one king's daughter would marry another king's son and, and they had all of these alliances and treaties and so on. 
And he was saying that should not be done. And, of course, they had multiple wives and concubines, and they had a house full of trouble. Yeah, that's what happened. But he said that would be the case. Going on, it says, uh, Neither shall he multiply, lets his heart turn away, neither shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. Uh, great wealth shouldn't be the goal. They shouldn't focus on building great wealth and trying to do that. And then it says, Also it shall be when he sits on his throne um, that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book. And he was to write out in his own handwriting a copy of the law and it was to make decisions based on it. Now why would he do that? Because you know it's like in the old correspondence course where you write out all the answers. When you write it out, you're apt to remember and if he wrote it out in his own hand, then he would be familiar with it. He would know what it was, and he could make decisions based on this wonderful law. Look at verse 20. That his heart may not be lifted up above his brethren. Certainly, being lifted up in pride and vanity. And over and over as you read the stories of the kings and kings and chronicles and so on, you see that many of them became lifted up and were proud, and it was their undoing. It was their downfall. It was something that God said would happen, and certainly it did. Now, Jesus Christ recognized this as the way it would be in the world. Look at Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, verse 42. He was talking to his disciples about how they should be being humble, being servant, being servant leaders, and so on. Mark 10, verse 42, he said, You know those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles, lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. And they strut about in great pomp and pageantry, you see, uh, not concerned about the people very often, but mostly about their own um, power and greatness and vanity. Christ recognized how it would be in this world. And as you look around you, that's what you'll see. Brethren, these problems will persist until God's kingdom is set up on this earth. And then when we will serve as kings and priests with a different attitude, an attitude of service, an attitude of love and concern for others. Brethren, let's press on to the next really dumb idea. Number four is our countdown. Number four, the animal rights movement. Anthropomorphism, that's giving human characteristics to animals. Interesting how pervasive that is. Now, carried to the extreme, it means giving animals the rights and privileges that human beings have. Now, you're familiar with the organization PETA, P-E-T-A, uh, for the People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. I like to say people eating tasty animals, but, but the People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. And here's what they say. They say that animals are not ours to be used for food, clothing, entertainment, or experimentation. That pretty well rules out any use of animals, you see. Now, brethren, what are the source of these ideas? Where would, where would ideas like this come from? Well, ancient pagan religions ascribed spirit to all life. And so they had 
things that they worship. You know, they would worship, the Indians would worship the buffalo, or others would have, the, the Egyptians would worship creatures, you see. So then uh, misguided young people who've grown up watching animals talk on cartoons. <laughs> you know? And, you know, uh, Tom and Jerry and all of that stuff, and who, who knows what the modern ones are. And then I'm convinced people with way too much time on their hands. You know, <laughs> to be caught up in this sort of thing. But what does the Bible say about this? Because it is certainly, certainly something we need to understand. Look at Genesis chapter 1. We looked at this earlier, but we'll take a quick look back. Genesis 1. Genesis one twenty six. we read that God made man. And in the second sentence it says, or the, it says, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, and over all the earth, and every other creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So mankind was to have dominion over the animals. Uh, it meant to, to use them for the purpose intended. To use these animals and so on for the purpose intended. Now, it's interesting as God was evicting Adam and Eve from the garden, this wonderful garden that he planted, and they're no longer going to be there. He's evicting them. Genesis 3, verse 21. It said, Then the Lord said, Behold, I'm sorry, verse 20, yeah, verse 21. Also for Adam, his wife, uh, and his wife, the Lord made tunics of skin and clothed them. So here we see that God himself made clothes for Adam and Eve from skins, from animals. Now, God wouldn't do anything that's not right. <laughs> so it seems clear that animals are for that use. You ladies that have mink coats, you know, you can rest. It's okay. <laughs> and certainly we use leather for shoes and all sorts of things. Now, in Leviticus, um, in Leviticus 11, verses 1 through 19, uh, God tells us which animals and birds and fish are good for food. As we were visiting before services, uh, this came up and we were, we were talking about that. And it tells us the types of animals that we can eat and the types of fish that are for human consumption and the type of birds and so on. And I won't take the time, brethren, to read those, but I hope that you will. Most of you are very familiar with it. But if you aren't or if you want to review, read about it because it, it's very interesting. It's something that we need to know because God said certain things we were to eat and certain things we were not. Now, as we think about this, does this mean, because we have dominion, that we can abuse animal life? No, not at all. Turn back to Proverbs chapter 12. Proverbs. Proverbs 12 and verse 10. It says, A righteous man regards the life of his animal. A good man, you see, will be concerned that his animal is taken care of. But the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. But a righteous person is concerned, whether it be a pet, a dog, or a cat, or uh, your, you know, your parakeet, whatever it might be, or whether it's livestock, uh, uh, work animals, draft animals, whatever it might be, that have regard for that. It takes good care. Turn over to uh, Deuteronomy 25. It's interesting, God, even little details like this are included. God did not want us left without a guideline, without instructions. Deuteronomy 25, verse 4. Here's a physical thing, and there's also a spiritual principle, but we'll look at the physical side. Deuteronomy 25, verse 4. You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, 
We're to feed our animals well. You see, we're not to work them until they drop and get another animal. We're to take care of them, have concern for them. And then even in the New Testament, Jesus Christ referred to it. Look at Luke 13. They were trying to trap Jesus Christ. And again, he had the right answer for them that they could not deny. Luke 13, verse 15, talking about keeping the Sabbath. Luke 13 and verse 15. They accused him of doing something unlawful on the Sabbath, like healing someone. They tried to trap him. Verse 15, the Lord answered and said, Hypocrite. You notice Jesus Christ didn't mince words. (laughs) Hypocrite. Does not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead it away to water it? I mean, even these hard-hearted people knew you should take care of your animals, and so they watered them. Brethren, it's obvious that God has given us the animals for our proper use, and the various protests and resulting anarchy are not from God. Let's press on. Number three as we proceed down our list of really dumb ideas of mankind. Multiculturalism and political correctness. Doesn't it make you crazy? It really is something that impedes communication. What's it all about? Uh, Does God's Word address such modern concepts as multiculturalism and political correctness? Now, certainly it's not wrong to study other cultures and their values, because we can learn from that, certainly. Also, it's not wrong to root out racism and sexist prejudices and problems. Uh, Obviously, God has instruction about that. The problems occur in implementation. It's so hard sometimes for us to find the balance. In, in putting these concepts into practice, you see, because of the teary motives, often multiculturalism is used as a vehicle to rewrite history. So many of the things have been rewritten uh, so that it uh, does not reflect what actually happened. And it's used to attack the values of Western civilization. Now, the politically correct movement is an, is a, an, uh, an attempt through intimidation and coercion to reshape society. Very, very interesting. It's to promote feminist ideas and to silence opposing views. Uh, for example, the new politically correct uh, New International Version of the Bible. <laughs> see? It, it's politically correct. Now, being politically correct inhibits good communication. It muddies the meaning of words and phrases. You, know, you can't say male or female. You have to say person. Now, we've already shown God is not neutral on gender. <laughs> he made them male and female. And he wants his males to be masculine and his women, uh, you know, the females to be uh, um, uh, feminine. Now, as I said, does does the Bible address these issues? Look at Exodus 12. Exodus 12. Anciently, God gave principles that help us in these concepts that are, are popular today. Exodus 12, verse 49. As we press on. It says here that one law shall be for the native born and for the stranger who sojourns among you. There was to be one set of rules rather than several sets of rules for the different nationalities and different ethnic groups and so on. There's one set of rules and that way you would not have um, chaos. Uh, Verse 48 talks about the stranger and who wanted to keep the Passover and so on. Uh, Turn over to Exodus 22. Exodus 22, verse 21. Here's a principle that certainly we should keep in mind. Exodus 22, verse 21. You shall neither mistreat a stranger nor oppress him. 
for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You see, we're not to, it says vex in the King James. That has a lot more bite to it. Don't, you're not to vex uh, the stranger. It means no discrimination. It means no discrimination. And as God's people, we should never, ever discriminate. Look at Exodus 23, going right on. Exodus 23, verse 9. It says, Also you shall not oppress a stranger, for you know the heart of a stranger, because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. It meant no exploitation. Don't take that person who's a stranger or a foreigner and treat them as the Pharaoh did the children of Israel, where he made them make all this stuff and and their work was bitter. We're not to exploit people in that way. Uh, Certainly things that we should not do. And there are things, certainly, that, if and I won't have time to read there, you can read it in Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28, verses 43 and 44, where it talks about the stranger among you would rise over you, and that would be the ultimate result of not obeying these principles. Now, how about being politically correct and saying one thing and meaning another? Look at Deuteronomy 27. One of my pet peeves, and I'm sure it must be yours as well, is political correctness. Deuteronomy 27, verse 8. And here's the instruction. And you shall write very plainly on the stones all the words of this law. To write plainly. You don't have to couch your meaning and, and tiptoe around the subject. He said, write plainly. And brethren, we try to do that in our publications and, and, and everything that we do. We want to be plain. And, and speak so that we can be understood and not misunderstood. Look at John 16. John chapter 16. We find that our Savior spoke plainly. John 16, verse 29. <clears throat> he had been giving all of these wonderful principles and teaching in verse 29. John 16, 29, his disciples said to him, See, now you are speaking plainly and, not, and using no figure of speech. Jesus Christ wasn't politically correct. in his. Uh, he spoke plainly, so there was no misunderstanding what he had to say. Very, very important. Brethren, turn over to Psalm 19. This should be our prayer. This, this should be as we speak and as we deal with others. Psalm 19. Verse 14, wonderful psalm that most of you know. Psalm 19, verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Very important, brethren. If we do that, we won't have to be politically correct. Let's press on. Number two, as we come down to the end of our list of really dumb ideas. It's the economy, stupid. Remember, remember this, this is a very popular political slogan just a while back, and it still comes up from time to time. It was this popular campaign slogan, and it's a commonly held belief. Turn over to Haggai. I'll find it. You probably won't. I'll give you the page number, 946, okay, since we've been doing that today. Haggai chapter 1 verse 5 describes an economic situation that we see for many people. Haggai 1 verse 5. Now, therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. We often talk about that in sermons and sermonettes, asking you to consider your ways. Verse 6, you have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but do not have enough. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. 
You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put in a bag with holes. Classic definition of inflation, you see. So as we read this, this is what we see going on today in our society. It describes the economic situation for many people. If we're setting our hearts on the physical, we may find that we're not able to accumulate and do those things. Look over at uh, Luke chapter 12. Here we have a story of a man who thought he had it made. My subtopic in the New King James says, The parable of the rich fool. Luke 12, verse 16. Then he spoke a certain a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. This guy was a good farmer. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I'll do this. I'll pull down my barns and build greater. And... There I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, we could say self, I will say to myself, self, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. What did God say to this man who thought he had it made? You fool. You fool. He missed the point entirely. And it goes on and says, This night your soul, your life, will be required of you. And then whose will those things be which you have provided? This man had plenty, but he had no concern for others. He was all focused on himself. Now, brethren, turn over to uh, Luke 17. Luke 17. If we think it's just about money, if we think it's just about the economy, we can certainly be misled. Luke 17, verse 26. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will also be, be also in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, restaurants were all full, you see. They married wives, big weddings, you see, and they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. If you're looking around you and everything looks rosy, you see, if you're watching the economy and not what God has to say and what's going on in the world and what's going on in the church, you may be misled because it may look pretty good when we're very close to the end. It certainly did in the time of Noah. Brethren, what should our approach be? Look at Matthew chapter 6. You can read all the scriptures here. We'll just go to the culmination of it. He's talking here about being concerned about what we eat and what we drink and about uh, laying up treasures on heaven. And he said, if you do that, You're going to be in trouble. But in Matthew 6, verse 33, he says, But seek first. What's your priority? Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things, all these things that everybody's concerned about, food and clothing and shelter and those things, will be added to you. Now, we also know, brethren, that God wants His people to do well. In 3 John 2, it says, Brethren, I wish above all things that you may prosper and be in health. God does want His people to do well. Now there's cause and effect. A strong economy and prosperity can only uh, last if it's based on godly principles. As a nation, as a company, as a family, seek God first and we'll prosper. Now, brethren, we're down to number one. You've endured, and I appreciate that. Number one. Really. Really dumb idea of mankind. Number one is, what's the use? 
Nothing will turn out right. Life is futile. Now, so many people have this approach to life, and they're overcome with a feeling of hopelessness. What's the use? Now, it's not new. Turn over to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. It's not new. Solomon, who had everything, great riches, everything that you could want physically, was certainly filled with frustration. I'll let you read all about it. Uh, you can read in chapter 1 all the things that he has. And he said, uh, um, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. It's all futility. You can read that. We don't have time this afternoon. Read chapter 1. He sums it up and it shows the attitude that he has in chapter 2, verse 17. He says, therefore I hated life because the work that was done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and grasping for the wind. It became something that was dis he was discouraged. He was even suicidal. And brethren, if we focus on the physical, if that's all we focus on, it can happen to us. And it shouldn't. Now, God has something uh, in store for us. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. In verse 9. But it is written, Paul said... It is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love Him. Certainly, brethren, God has something beyond our wildest dreams and understanding in store for us. We, we can try to understand it intellectually, and yet, as it says here, that we really can't grasp it. We know it's going to be wonderful, and we have some of the details. We see through a glass darkly, but it's going to be greater than what we can even understand. Turn over to 1 Corinthians 15. We focus on this often, the resurrection chapter, when we're having funerals or, or trying to encourage people. Brethren, I hope that we can take encouragement from it as well. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible, this physical, you see, must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible is put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. We've had a lot of that in the church in recent months and years. Uh, people have ha died untimely deaths. And yet, brethren, we must not be discouraged because there is going to come a time when death will be swallowed up in victory. Very important. Look at verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing, not being discouraged, not be having this feeling of hopelessness at all, knowing that your labor... In vain. is not in vain. Your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So brethren, I hope that we can see that life isn't futile, but it's part of a great plan for all mankind. Well, there you have them, brethren, ten really dumb ideas that have caused mankind much trouble down through history. Ideas that may sound good or become popular, but they don't agree with God's Word. Thankfully, we have ten great ideas called the Ten Commandments, by which all other ideas are to be judged. I'll read the last scripture that I have for you today. Isaiah 8, verse 20. Isaiah 8, verse 20 says, To the law and to the testimony, 
If they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Brethren, as new ideas are put forth, always shine the light of God's word on them. Accept the good ones and be on guard against really dumb ideas.